And hey, this morning we are continuing our series on the book of Exodus, and we're in Exodus chapter 33. I'm going to invite Stan to come on up at this time, and Stan is going to read the text for us, Exodus chapter 33. And before he reads, let me just say a brief word of prayer, and let's just open ourselves up to to God and what he wants to say to us through this text this morning. God, we do thank you so much for your inspired word. And God, we do thank you so much for the book of Exodus and all that it says about who you are. And Lord, we do pray that our hearts would be open to you and what you want to say to each of us through this text now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place. You and the people brought up out of Egypt and go up to the land I have promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give to your descendants. I will send an angel before you to drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Pezzarites, the Hevites, and Jubasites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stick-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the Tent of Meetings. Anyone inquiring on the Lord would go to the tent of meetings outside the camp. And whoever, whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrance of their tent, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As he entered the tent, as Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke to Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance of their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one would speak to a friend. Then Moses returned to the camp. But his young aide, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I've known you by name, and you have found favor in me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this is your nation, is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, In your presence does not send, uh, excuse me, in your presence does not go with us. Do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me? and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth. 
And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked me because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim your, my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one sees my face and lives. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cliff, a cleft on the rock and cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back. But my face you will not see. Thanks so much, Stan, for reading that for us. And hey, if I haven't met you before, I'm Ben, and I'm the pastor who works with the youth and young adults here at Summit Drive, and it's such a joy to be able to, to share with you all this morning. Well, long-distance relationships are hard, or so I'm told, at least. It's something that I've been told again and again and again by young people who are trying to find a life partner and for a season are needing to do the long-distance thing. But why is it so hard? Why are long-distance relationships so hard? We have the technology now. You can text, you can call, you can even video chat with another person pretty much anytime you want from any place. That's a whole lot different than back in the day. I, I hear that Back in the day, couples used to like write letters to each other. I don't know, was that a thing? Yeah? Um, that must have been pretty cool. Um, today, yes, you can text, you can call, you can FaceTime or Zoom each other. But despite the advances in technology, long-distance relationships are still hard. There is something that is missing when you can't be present with another person. Because presence matters. Some of us especially realized this during COVID uh, when in the middle of those lockdowns, we couldn't do things in person. We couldn't see our friends. We couldn't see our family members. And we had the technology to communicate, and we did continue to communicate to all those same people that we always did before. But so many studies show the debilitating effects that those years had on the mental health of so many people. Why? Because presence matters. There is something more. And there is something so important that we experience being with, being present to another. And what if we were created by an all-powerful, all-loving God, a personal God who made us for relationship with himself? If that's true, wouldn't his presence in our lives be something that would be, like, really important? This theme of God's presence, it shows up throughout the passage of Scripture uh, that we just heard. And we're going to spend some time today exploring Exodus chapter 33 and what it says to us today about the presence of God and about how we can know his presence in our lives. Before we dive into this passage, though, I want to start by asking a bit of a puzzling question, actually. 
where is God anyhow? Where is God? See, you can look at me. You can come and you can place a hand on my shoulder. Uh, If you get really up close, you might even be able to smell the shampoo that I used this morning. You can experience me with your five senses, and you know that here I am. I'm, I'm right here. But it doesn't quite work that way with God. So where is God? Some theologians have suggested that Scripture answers that question uh, in at least three different ways. And so perhaps we can think of there being three different senses of God's presence. Uh, First of all, God is everywhere. In Psalm 139, we hear the psalmist say, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my my bed in the depths, you are there. Nowhere can one escape the presence of God. Theologians will say that God is omnipresent, meaning that, yes, God is everywhere. There's nowhere that you you can go to escape him. That's part of what it means for the infinite God to be the infinite God. But then we also look at the start of the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, and we read, Our Father in heaven. And so God is in heaven. Well, in one sense, God is always present everywhere. In another sense, his dwelling place is in heaven. And we might think of heaven as the control center of the universe, the place where God reigns in power and in authority on his throne. But God, the Lord, Yahweh, whom we meet in the book of Exodus and throughout the biblical story, is a God who desires to be present among his people. And there is a third sense of God's presence, God's manifest, God's special manifest presence among his people that the scriptures place the greatest emphasis on. In the biblical story, if you read the biblical story, you'll you'll see that at the very beginning, actually, the, the idea of God existing like up in heaven isn't even really a thing because God creates the cosmos. He creates the world as his very dwelling place. And so in the beginning, we see at the beginning of the Genesis story that heaven and earth interlock and overlap after God creates everything that there is. But after the first people whom God created, after they sin against God and after they reject him as first and best in their lives, that harmony between, between heaven and earth, that, that harmony that once existed, it comes undone. Something of the presence of God is lost. God's special manifest presence is no longer among us in the same way. But God had a plan to come and be among his people once again. And we see in the Exodus story that part of this plan includes something called the tabernacle. The instructions for the tabernacle, which show up throughout chapters 25 to 31 of the book of Exodus, are all about creating a space for God's special manifest presence to be among his people. Because God longs to dwell in their midst. He longs to be present. A phone call or a text or a video chat from God aren't enough. So God had a plan where he could be present with his people. But last week, 
Pastor Dave talked about the golden calf incident. Last week, we saw that Israel, that they fall into idolatry, that they worship this golden calf instead of worshiping Yahweh. And in that, um, well, things don't go so well. Not such a good thing. Um, They forsake God. And after that, well, we see now that something of God's presence seems to be lost. Have you ever messed something up in your life and then had this feeling that you were far from God? Certainly not always, but sometimes our inability to know and experience God's presence exists because of his holiness and because of the sin and the evil that is present in our lives. And that's the sort of thing that's going on here. Let's listen again to the first three verses of Exodus 33 once again. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you, because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. Now, earlier, God had made this promise that he was going to give his people this land flowing with milk and honey. And I find it really interesting that his promise here isn't undone after the people fall into idol worship. He says that he's still going to bring them into the land, and he'll, and he'll send his angel before them. And yet, he says, I'm not going with you anymore. My manifest presence dwelling among you will no longer be a thing in your midst. And this gets picked up again in the next scene of this text. We're introduced to something called the Tent of Meeting. And the Tent of Meeting almost seems a little bit like the tabernacle. It's this place where people can can connect with God. Um, But it is a little bit different. Um, Let's pay attention to verse 7. It says this. It says, Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the Tent of Meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. This tent of meeting was outside the camp. It was some distance away. It was not right in their midst, in the middle of their community. It's like we're post-COVID, but God's still, like, keeping his six feet here. He's still keeping just a little bit of distance. Now, is this the future for God's people? A tent off in a way where they can still kind of, sort of meet with God, but no more tabernacle, no more Yahweh present in their midst? The text leaves us with those questions at this point. Questions of, is God still going to dwell among his people? Questions of, is that whole tabernacle project that the writer took like six chapters to tell us all about, is that all just going to be canceled now? This is like when your best friend moves away and they say, I'll still call you. Let's keep in touch. Great, we think, but we know that something will not be the same. Something is lost without presence. And Moses knows this. Oh, does he ever know this? And so Moses, in the text here, he intercedes on behalf of his people, and he negotiates with God. Let's jump to verse 13. It says this. It says, If you... 
And here's Moses speaking to God. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. Yes, remember that this nation is your people. Moses is begging Yahweh not to abandon his covenant people. And what happens next? The Lord replied, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. This interaction here between Moses and Yahweh, it makes me think a little bit of a parable that Jesus tells about a widow in Luke chapter 18. Some of us might know this parable. Uh, The widow, she keeps on begging an unjust judge to grant her justice. And, And she begs this judge, and she bothers this judge so much that eventually the judge, even though he's an unjust judge, he grants her her request. So what about God? Won't he do the same when we pray like that? That seems to be the point of the parable that that Jesus tells us. See, this story here and, and the parable that Jesus tells us, I think it tells us that sometimes God doing something, sometimes God showing up in our lives, is dependent on our persistence in prayer. And so are we a people who are persistent in prayer? But let's go back to the text and focus in on what happens next because this is what I think that we really need to pay attention to. Moses' response to these words from from the Lord, they remind all God's people of all time of a vital truth that we cannot lose sight of. He says this. He says, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? God's presence is essential. God's presence is essential. See, for the Israelites, these people are no longer really God's people without his presence. Without his presence, as one commentator states, there will be no special treasure, no kingdom of priests, no holy nation, no Yahweh being their God, no covenant, no ark, no tabernacle, no altar, no cloud of glory. The people of Israel are suddenly in danger of becoming a people with no identity at all a non-people, and a non-group fragmented by the centrifugal force of selfish ambition and left without hope. Who are the people of Israel without Yahweh's presence? Who knows? (laughs) Sounds pretty hopeless for them right here now, doesn't it? Their whole identity without God's presence, their whole identity as a people is pretty much lost. Because God's presence is essential. And his presence was essential for his people, Israel, in the book of Exodus. And God's presence remains essential for us today as God's people as well. See, later in the biblical story, we see that Jesus comes as God in the flesh. Jesus becomes the tabernacle among us, you might say. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, through the cross, 
through the empty tomb, through what he accomplishes, God's special manifest presence is no longer found just in one specific place, in the tabernacle or in the temple. God's special manifest presence is poured out through the gift of the Holy Spirit who comes and dwells inside of all those who've placed their trust in Jesus. And just as his presence was essential for the Israelites, his presence is just as essential for us as well. Let me highlight just a few ways that the presence of God is essential for us as God's people today. First of all, God's presence is essential for our participation in God's mission. In Acts chapter 1, after, after Jesus' resurrection from, from the grave, and before he ascends to heaven, he tells his first followers, wait. He says, wait. He says, don't go telling people about me just yet. Why? Because you need God's presence. Acts 1.8, Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. With the Spirit empowering us, with God's own presence enabling us, we can boldly declare the good news of Jesus. We can make God's love known to the world, both in word and in deed. And so God's presence is essential for our participation in God's mission. Second point, God's presence is essential for our ongoing communion with him. Ephesians 2.18, Paul writes, For through him, that is, through Jesus, we both, that is, both Jew and Gentile, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. See, it's through the spirit of God that we have direct access to God. Jesus is no longer physically present here on earth, but our direct link to him, our direct link to God the Son, as well as to God the Father, is through the Holy Spirit. And it's because of the Spirit of God that we are brought into the very life of God, as 1 John tells us. Third point, God's presence is essential for our growth in character. Galatians 5, to 23, it says this. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so do you want to grow in those character traits? Do you want to grow in your ability to love? Do you want to grow in your ability to exude joy, your ability to experience peace? And the list goes on and on and on. Last summer, we did this whole series on the fruit of the Spirit, and, and we talked about how it is the Holy Spirit, it is God's Spirit in us who cultivates all those things in us. We only grow in these traits as we open ourselves up to the Spirit's work, as we open ourselves up to God's presence in our lives. Fourth point, God's presence is essential for us to know that we are His in Romans 8, Paul says this. He says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And so do you ever feel discouraged? Do you ever feel discouraged? Do you ever feel like maybe sometimes that, that God doesn't love you? It's the Spirit of God who, who comes alongside of us and, and who comforts us and who reminds us that we truly do belong to God. Okay. 
you might be thinking at this point. So it, it seems like God's presence is, like, really important. It seems like, yeah, okay, God's presence is essential. God's presence in us, God's presence among us. It seems like we need to be, like, open to the Holy Spirit and, and the ways that, that God is going to be at work in our lives through his presence. But you might be asking, how can I know God's presence? Or what does it even mean to know God's presence? Like, is that just a feeling, or is it something more? Some of you may have been following what was happening at Asbury University in Kentucky uh, just a few months ago. This small Christian college, they held this chapel service on February 8th of this year, just earlier this year. And the service, it had a bit of a soft ending to it. It was kind of like just a regular chapel service. Had a bit of a soft ending with some space for students to continue to to just stick around and and pray for each other afterwards if they wanted to do that. And a small group of students decided to to stick around and to pray with each other. And they started worshiping together. And then a few hours later, they were still worshiping together. And then more and more and more and more people began to join them. And within the next several days, thousands, even tens of thousands of people from all over the states, all over the world even, came to visit this small town in Kentucky to be a part of what God was doing. This event, now often called the Asbury Revival, went on for weeks with people experiencing healing in their bodies, freedom from addictions, people coming to Christ for the first time, and so much more. John Tyson, he's a pastor in New York City, he recently did a sermon series where he talked about all sorts of different revival movements, kind of like this, uh, throughout church history. Movements where it seemed like the Spirit of God was being poured out in an extraordinary way, and where large numbers of people were committing their lives to Christ, and people were experiencing some sort of spiritual awakening. And and Tyson talks about how uh, these sorts of movements, they've popped up actually within all sorts of different denominations and all sorts of different theological traditions within the church. And so he goes on this journey and he asks this question, what's the principle that underlies all these movements? And here's his conclusion. God comes where he's wanted. God comes where he's wanted. In Luke's gospel, chapter 11, Jesus seems to back up this idea when he tells his followers, he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. And just a few verses after that in Luke 11, he says that if even earthly fathers who are evil know how to give good gifts to their children, he says, how much more Will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? In other words, how much more will God give his presence to those who really want him? God comes where he's wanted. And it's important to note that God's presence through his spirit is already a present reality in and among his people. It's not like God isn't here and he's like far off and then when we want him, all of a sudden he just shows up and appears. But it is possible for God's presence to be known more fully. And it's also possible for God's presence to be diminished and pushed down in our lives. 
So do you want God? Do we as a people want God? Do you want more of him? Do we want more of him? If you want God, you will get his presence. You'll get his presence that sometimes brings a new measure of peace. His presence that sometimes brings a sense of reassurance. His presence that sometimes brings conviction and calls you to change. His presence that sometimes comes as a still, small voice that tells you to give up something in your life that you love more than you love him. So do you really want God? God comes where he's wanted. And we're not just talking about longing for an experience here. You know, one of the critiques of some of these revival movements, including the Asbury revival, is that sometimes the focus in these movements becomes more on the experience of God than on God himself. And so sometimes that longing for God ends up becoming more of a longing to see healings or to see miracles or to have some sort of intense feeling of God's presence. And sometimes those sorts of things do accompany the presence of God, but not all the time. Going back to the Asbury thing, though, you know, I was doing just a little bit of research about the whole Asbury event just a few days ago, and I discovered something really beautiful and something really fascinating that that I wanted to share as part of this. This whole thing began with one young man after that chapel service who began confessing his sins. That's what changed the atmosphere. It all started with confession. It all started with repentance, which reminds us of something really, really important. Reminds us of something really important in this whole conversation about knowing God's presence and wanting God. To want God and to want a life that's lined up with God are almost the same thing. Maybe I'll just say that one more time. To want God and to want a life that's lined up with God are almost the same thing. In John 16, 13, Jesus tells us about the Holy Spirit. He says, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. See, God doesn't give us his Spirit so that we will have warm and fuzzy feelings inside. Although sometimes that might happen, God gives us his Spirit to instruct us, to guide us, to enable us to live a life that's lined up with truth. In a recent article, biblical scholar Drew Johnson writes, to say that I want to feel close to God is somehow separate from I want to embody God's instruction seems out of whack with the whole reason for God's presence as the Holy Spirit. To want God, to want his spirit, means to want a life that's lined up with him, that's lined up with his instruction. So do we want that? Do you want that? And when it comes to that desire we might have to to feel close to God, perhaps we can think of it a little bit like a marriage relationship. Uh, For those of you who are married, maybe you'll resonate with this. Maybe you'll connect with this. So for those of us who are married, even though our spouse lives in the same place as us, there are certain days and there are certain seasons where we might feel closer to our spouse than others. 
And we can't always control those feelings, but there are actions that we can take that help facilitate a sense of closeness. Actions like not keeping secrets, like forgiving each other, like prioritizing date nights, and I'm sure the list could go on. When we act in ways that are favorable toward our spouse, it sets us up to experience a greater sense of closeness with that other person. It's similar in our relationship with God. Acting in ways that are favorable toward him sets us up to know his closeness. And I want us to go back to the text now. Because what we'll see is that this is exactly what Moses has in his relationship with Yahweh. See, Moses had acted in ways that have been favorable toward knowing God's presence. He has. We see that in the text in verse 17 where we read, And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and because I know you by name. The Lord promises his presence because he is pleased with Moses, because he is pleased with the way that Moses has conducted himself. And what about that whole part about wanting God? That whole part about God comes where he's wanted? Well, God's presence comes because Moses wants him too. Here's Moses' request in the next verse, verse 18. He says to Yahweh, Now show me your glory. God, I want you. Now show me your glory. But here's the thing. Sometimes we have been living favorably toward God, and sometimes we genuinely do want him. And yet it still seems sometimes to us like his presence isn't there. So what do we make of that? Let's look at how the Lord responds to Moses' request here. The Lord says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. That's the next verse. And later he says that he will allow Moses to see his back, which is a really interesting part uh, that we don't have too, too much time to get into. But, but here's the key verse. Verse 20, the Lord says, You cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. Theologians and biblical scholars have wrestled with exactly how to make sense of all this. Like, Moses is allowed to see God's back, but not God's face. But it's like, doesn't the Bible tell us that God is spirit and he doesn't have a physical body like you and me? We're not going to get too, too deep into the weeds of all of that right now. But here's something that I think is really important to see. The word translated for face here is the Hebrew word panim. And that word panim, it actually appears a whole bunch of other times throughout this text as well. That word panim is also translated presence. Face, presence. It's the same word. And so there is a sense in which God is saying, you can know my presence in part right now, Moses. You can know it in part, but you don't, to, you don't get to experience the fullness of my presence at this time. Here's what we need to see. God is the one who chooses how much of himself to reveal to us and when. See, Moses seemed to be doing all the right things. Moses was acting favorably toward God. Moses wants God. But God, in his sovereign freedom, limits how much of himself 
he shows to Moses here. And he does the same with us too. And so in our lives, we might have special moments with God. Moments where we know and experience God's presence in a special sort of way. But those sorts of moments may not happen every day. And again, it is God who chooses how much of himself to reveal to us and when. And so we might ask, but will there come a day when that will be different? When there will no longer be that sense that God isn't present? And perhaps we especially ask that question when we're going through a season in life, and maybe that's even some of you who you're trying to honor God, but it just feels like God is so far away. Will that ever change? The answer is yes. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on back up at this time. At the very end of the biblical story, in the book of Revelation, we see that one day God's presence, one day God's glory will fill everything. In Revelation 21, the writer states, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. No more tabernacle needed. Yeah, there was that tabernacle thing for the people of Israel. That tabernacle is no longer needed. The temple is no longer needed. God's very presence will fill everything. And in Revelation 22, we read this. God's servants will serve him. They will, pay attention to this language, they will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, Now we see dimly, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. One day God's servants will see his face. One day God's people will know the fullness of his presence for all of eternity. That's the promise of the Bible. Is that something that you want? Is that something that you look forward to? In the meantime, we say, God, I trust that you are present even now. I trust that you are working even now. And I want more of you in my life even now. Let that be our prayer.